Welcome to the Nativist Podcast, where we tap into our instinct and natural power to live intuitively. The ultimate goal is to leave the world healthier and more beautiful than we found it. It all starts on the individual level by cultivating our mind-body connection. Whether you're on a healing journey or just want to look and feel your best, I hope by the end you feel a little happier, a little more inspired, and a little more invested in yourself and the world. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Nativist Podcast. And I know I say this about my guests because I pick them because I'm excited about them. But this guy, I'm telling you, it has been months in the making. And truly, I am out of my head with excitement because it is Rainier Wild. And you need to follow him on Instagram because when you do, you will see exactly what I'm talking about. This guy just brings the truth and the wisdom and different fresh perspectives on life and living it. And I just cannot get enough. And Rainier, hey, how's it going? It's going good. My God. Thank you for the intro. I, I feel warm and basking in this glow that apparently I'm emanating, but I can assure you I am not. No. I'm just so excited to be here. Everybody who follows you will completely dispute that. So seriously, I cannot wait to dive into the questions that I have for you. I hope you're ready. Oh, <laughs> you have a lot coming at you. <laughs> Sounds so good. I'm like, I got to ask them this and this and this. But first of all, let's get your story. So tell us about you, your backstory. You have a fascinating life. Mm. Boy, I never know where to begin like two million years ago or... <laughs> It's the most vague, and you can go as broad, wide, and deep with this as you want to. I just, I mean, first of all, like, you were a touring musician, so you've mm. done that. I mean, you've referenced your childhood and upbringing and your posts with, your dad was a religious guy, a minister, a pastor. A tele-evangelist, actually. Ah, no way. Yeah. Yeah, I spent I spent my childhood in the backseat of a station wagon traveling from radio station to revival and saw the lower 48 United States um, cuddled in the back, uh, securely looking out through the windows. And so that was most of my childhood. I moved. um, Well, I moved houses every year of my life. And uh, roughly, I think I lived in seven different states by the time I was 17. And so it was quite the adventure. What were your thoughts on that as you were in it, as you were a kid being shuffled around? Did you like it? Did you wish for a different life? You know, I've always looked back and felt myself to have been incredibly privileged. One of the things that occurs to me today, not only about myself, but about children in general, is that we're little meaning makers, aren't we? Oh, you know, like little scientists. Oh, yeah. And I was looking out at the world and developing these hypotheses about who I was and who people were and, and what they were thinking. And, and, you know, I moved enough and saw enough places where I began to develop this particular thought that everyone had their double, Ooh. that there was a doppelganger, that, 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 that there was one of me in every town and one of you. And, and if I could just figure out the pattern, then I would recognize the person. And I think that is a fascinating way for a child to be in the world. And I don't think my suspicion was wrong. And what I began to understand is that people are fairly uncomplicated. 
that we all, in fact, follow certain scripts, certain programs, and whether it's the sound of our voices or the contours of our faces or probably more specifically, the way we encounter the world around us, the way we behave, our patterns, we are profoundly automated. Truly. And, and so, you know, whether it's like the Enneagram, which only has nine points, if anyone's ever encountered this wonderful personality typing system called the Enneagram, I mean, it's almost laughable that a person can be reduced to one of nine. And yet, there is something true about that that in spite of how profoundly unlimited we actually are, there is a way that we occur in the world which is reduced to just a few points over and over and over. So I think as a child, I was becoming aware of that. I was becoming aware that, that people followed these well-trod paths. And actually, that sort of teed me up for a realization that I, that I had several years ago uh, after having gone through a number of my own lifetimes. And I remember telling a friend, looking at a friend and saying, oh, you're so much like my friend, Ryan. And this particular person looked at me and said, no, I'm not. I'm me. And that hit me like a ton of bricks because I realized that this wonderful pattern-making brain of mine had in fact morbidly reduced people to cookie cutter moments. And my deep hope in life is that people exceed those paint by numbers sort of ways of occurring. That in fact, you can look at me and say, no, I, I'm not like that person in that town over there. That I actually am a potential. Ooh, that's deep. I love that. So much to unpack there. And you referenced this in your post today, which I definitely wanted to hit on because it basically said to be more than your type, whether it's your Enneagram type, your astrological sign, whatever other personality test that you took, whatever sort of category that you've identified with or assigned to yourself or others have assigned to you, you're more than that. And that might be a way to organize your thoughts and get a grasp on who you are now or kind of get like a hazy picture of who you are but you're more than that, like you said, and there's potential beyond that. And that's not an end-all be-all. And you can transcend that and you should transcend that. So, yeah. yeah. And you know, I, and, and, and what, I, what I think that I sometimes land upon is this dual kind of question. For one, people often ask me, do I really think change is actually possible? Like, is real change actually possible? And after working with people for a number of years, I'll be honest, it is. It's very possible for you to change your stars. That, that you. actually you are not bound by the laws of your universe. That who you think you are is not all that you are. And in fact, there's so much more besides the, the parts that you don't know you don't know where possibility actually lies. There is so much more to any one person than they imagine. And you can, in fact, be transformed to encounter those places, yes. to be an occurrence, to be a happening in the world, to become a verb, to no longer be a secondhand human or a Xerox copy. You don't have to be that. But here's the second point. It's also far more difficult than people actually imagine. 
that those of us who believe in change also have to acknowledge the other side, which is there is a tremendous cost Ooh. to transformation. In fact, as I said in one of uh, a recent posts, um, who you are becoming will cost you who you are. And that's a cost sometimes people aren't willing to pay. And like you had said, that's so encouraging to me and I can understand and I want your input on this too, how that can be settling for some and unsettling for others, depending on your current mindset. So for some, that sounds daunting. Like if you feel so discombobulated and you don't have your footing in life and you just need some certainty and some surety, that could be very unnerving because you're like, I just need to, I need black and white right now. I need certainty. I need to just figure out who I am and then just cling to that like a life preserver. And for some people that would be freedom and liberation. Like I'm not destined and doomed to this particular lifestyle or way of being. And there's a way to transcend that. And I can understand how that would have a different um, impact on people depending on where they are currently. Do you yeah. agree with that? Absolutely. Um, and I'm going to be relentless here. And I'm going to say that we are called to be alive. Yeah. That, that humanity is meant to be human. And to be human is to be fully and deeply alive in relationship to the here and now. And that we tend towards being asleep, right? We, we drift towards it over and over and over. And that we have so many opportunities to wake up right? I used to work, you talk about backstory. I used to work for United Parcel Service when I was in my early 20s. And I worked the swing shift. And so I'd get off uh, very early in the morning. And I'd, I'd leave, um, you know, just dog tired. I was so exhausted yeah. from the day. And I lived an hour away from where I worked. Ooh. So I'd have to drive. And it's so funny, because even at the time, I was aware that I would leave the warehouse and I could remember leaving that giant center. And then I would mysteriously appear on my doorstep an hour later. I don't know what happened. I mean, and I think I was legitimately sleep driving. I, I'm, I'm fairly convinced that I was able to navigate, you know, this one ton vehicle through time and space in traffic and completely be shut off. I was sleep driving and, and whether anyone's sleepwalked or, or done anything like this, we can all acknowledge that we've been in a restaurant from time to time. We've looked over at someone who is sitting with others and they're just looking off, but they're not there. They're asleep. And I've been that. This is how we occur in life so often. And you know how we know it. We know it because we get shocked by things like, oh my God, that politician did that horrible thing. I'm so shocked. How could they? They're not who I thought they were. Or that minister, that religious figure did, did that deplorable thing. My God, or my partner, how could they have done that? Well, listen, we would not be shocked. We would not be surprised if we had been awake. Yes. Yeah. 100%. And if you're aware and you're in the moment and you're paying attention Yes, you're going to pick up on those signs. It doesn't come out of nowhere. It doesn't just appear out of nowhere. There are signs and things, whether your subconscious or your conscious is picking up on, that if you're, like you said, awake and in it and aware, you'll notice those. You will. Yeah. And what a great litmus test. I love that framing of it, where we wouldn't be shocked if we were paying attention and we were awake. Mm -hmm. And I love, 
actively living life, not passively. Well, and that's just it. That right there, to, to actively live life. I love, I love that juxtaposition, to not passively, to not be asleep, to, to not be unaware, yeah. but to go through our experience with total wide-eyed attention to living. And that's terrifying. So to get back to your point about, about people, <laughs> you know, maybe we've all seen the matrix. I, I think um, my, my partner, I was asking her recently, um, hey, we should watch The Matrix again. And she said, again, I've never seen it. And I'm like, what? How has someone made it through the last 20 years of, of humanity without seeing this? Anyway, if you're one of those people, yeah, that's yeah. fine. But you should probably <laughs> watch it if you are. And, and there's this great moment where, you know, this character named Cypher, who, who has been unplugged from this hyper reality called The Matrix that keep people asleep and, and in their patterns, well, he's awake. He's one of the people who's aware, but he, he negotiates to get replugged back in. And he makes this statement. He says, because at the end of the day, I'd just rather be having what I think is a stake, right? He knows it's false. He knows it's a program, but he'd just rather have the comfort of living in unreality. And so many people are willing to make that trade-off. So... Funny you should mention that. So I do would you rathers every Wednesday and I pose five would you rather questions every Wednesday. It's my favorite thing to do. And I love it because the fifth one is always like kick in the gut, like the worst. I get so many love hate messages after that. <laughs> total bullshit. I mean, it's the worst. Like, would you rather, let's say you have two kids, would you rather kill like your oldest or your youngest? Like awful questions like that. This one wasn't as bad that I'm going to talk about, but the one, one of the questions that I asked yesterday was, would you rather live in a virtual reality where everything works in your favor and everything works out and mm. everything is great? Or would you rather live in real life where things aren't so streamlined and perfect? And I'll tell you what most people said. Um, oh, well, that's interesting. So virtual reality, 83% would rather live in the real world, 17% would rather live in a virtual reality. And that's, I mean, definitely not a controlled study, but it's interesting how people would rather truly live in a reality that is just easy. And they're, they're aware that they're living in a, um, a sleeping reality and they're okay with that. And they would rather, instead of dealing with the heaviness of life as it can be. Well, and, and I don't know your particular audience, but I know the capacity for human self-deception. Yes. It's yes, sort yes, of like exactly. looking back, <laughs> I was watching a, a World War II documentary with my kids and my, my daughter, who's nine and sharp as a tack, she, she said, now, were the French on the Nazis' side? And my 15-year-old son said, well, some were and some weren't. And then my 14-year-old son jumped in and said, yeah, and the ones who weren't on the Nazis' side came back and they really punished the ones who were. You know, they're telling this story about the collaborators and, and this unique kind of thing. And, and my daughter said this really interesting thing. She said, I think you guys think you'd be on the side of the resistance, but you'd probably be collaborators. And that's just the truth. Like we always kind of like to imagine ourselves very heroically, right? On the prow of the yes. ship, going through the storm, laughing at the, the hurricane. Most of us are huddled at the back of the deck, right? Just hiding, hanging on for dear life, if we're honest, right? Yes, and that so is such easy. a major point of this because yeah, I mean, and I understand that and that's, 
that's just the reality of it because just because people vote a certain way and I know this because this I mean again like this truly isn't a controlled study people are aware of what image they're projecting and they'll message me after I don't look I intentionally don't look at the results um like mm. who voted for what because I want people to have their privacy whether they realize that or not but they're aware because they'll message me and they'll be like, Oh, I vote. I met the other one. I'm so sorry. I meant to choose the other option. And it's like, Hey, that's on you. I don't care. There's no judgment. And for them to be aware of my possible judgment or others possible judgment, it affects which option they choose. And yeah. you know, typically, and my, myself included, I'm, I'm part of that. I, I try not to, and I try to overcome that, but there is that tendency and that inclination to cultivate a certain image because of what people will think. And so, I mean, when it comes to those really hard um, questions as the last of the would you rathers, the one that like is a moral dilemma, a lot of people feel on display when they're choosing whichever option because they're afraid of what other people will think of them, what I will think of them. And, you know, sometimes it's clear like what the, the moral answer would be. And so if they feel like if that's even, even if it's their truth to choose otherwise, they don't want people to think a certain way of them. And that guides and colors how we navigate the world and the decisions that we make because we're aware of what people will think, as a, will think of us if we do a certain thing. You know, Whitney, I think that what you just hit on is probably one of the, the key components to human personality. That for the most part, we're highly automated machines geared towards a single outcome, which is looking good and sounding right. <laughs> um, and the reason why we're geared that way, of course, is because there's such a profound drive towards belonging. Yes. Right? We so deeply need to belong. Of course, this isn't a new story. I mean, this is 350,000 years of Homo sapiens sapien evolution and, and adaptation. What we've learned is that to, to survive, to be alive, means to belong. And so we would almost do anything. We would cut off our own arm if it was keeping us from belonging. And what we learned a long time ago was that in order to belong, we had to look good. Yep, yep. <laughs> we, we had to give a good visual. Yep. And so we go through life adhering to these interesting dogmas and taboos and rituals and customs. Uh, we avoid saying certain things. We avoid making sounds out of the hole in our face. We, we, we are offended by people's smells and odors and behaviors and the way they move their body and the things that they wear. Right. Why? Because we want to look good and we want them to look good because I like to look good in relationship to the people who I'm with. And it's an endless litany of looking good and trying to be right in order to belong. One of the great freedoms that happens, I think, um, when you come to the place where you're really willing to live fully and deeply as a human being, to not be asleep, is you shed the need to look good and sound right. In fact, recently I was in a forum with someone and uh, a workshop, and uh, this person said, you didn't do that thing right. You made the wrong choice. And I said, quite probably. I did the best I could in the moment. But here's the deal. I'm not addicted to being right. I can be wrong. That right Most there, people how are liberating different. is that? That's right. 
so incredibly liberating. And that's something that, I mean, I'm 34, I just turned 34. And that's a liberation that I have. Congratulations. So, thank you. I'm still working on that. But I just clung to that with a death grip. I needed to be right. That was my identity. That's how I found acceptance and value. And going back, I mean, it's all tied together because like you said, the tribe mentality to be cast outside of the tribe back in the day, thousands of years ago meant death. And so we needed that. And then optics are continually important for, I mean, physical reasons, physical survival, emotional survival. So people are still hardwired to perpetuate that. And then that introduces, I mean, God, there's just so much to unpack here too. The whole repression aspect of it too. So if you're repressing your shadows or your desires, what are quote unquote shadows or unacceptable desires or actions or behavior, a lot of times you're just fueling that. And you see a lot of that too. I mean, it's just human behavior is fascinating. You have, let's say homosexuality is looked down upon or banned in certain areas. And you have these people a lot of times who are the most vocal opposers of it or opponents are the ones who are actually gay themselves. And you'll find them in a scandal or a sting operation. They're the ones or yeah, you just, you find that people who just aren't willing or able for whatever reason, able to accept their shadows or their shadow desires, just fuel those desires. And there's such a freedom in being able to own those. And I want your input on this too. So I find that when people are angry, let's say that they're angry, anger comes from somewhere. There's a source behind it. And so if you're angry at people who dare to live their truth, let's say that they're, they dare to come out of the closet or they dare to live whatever their truth is. Anger is a lot of times the leading emotion because people know it's easier to feel, well, they don't know this, but just automatically it's easier to feel anger than it is to feel shame or to feel guilt or to feel whatever those other uncomfortable emotions are. And so it seems like people who see others coming forward and living their truth unashamedly um, or see people that are just okay with being wrong sometimes or just living themselves fully. A lot of people respond with anger because deep down they wish that they could be that free and that open and it's easier to feel anger again than it is the other emotions. What's your take on that? Yeah, I also think it's just profoundly threatening yeah. to see someone who is uh, is living truly free. We actually need to justify our own experiences, our own mundane and automated ways of being alive. And we often do it by kind of creating these fantasies, like someone out there is living their best life. And that allows me to not. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know that sounds strange, but we love our celebrities. Yeah, yeah. We love like this idea that someone out there is, is wearing a cool hat and it's not me, but the fact that they are gives me the ability to kind of like know that, well, that's them out there. Rock stars wear cool hats and I wear my little like alligator polo and I feel good about that because somebody out there is being crazy and that kind of justifies my uncrazy existence. Yeah. And suddenly when we see an ordinary person walking down the street, dancing their way on the sidewalk, 
it means that ordinary people can do extraordinary things. And I don't like that very much. Right. Because right. then it might mean that I have to do extraordinary things with my experience. And I'm not. I'm, I'm being asleep. And, and I think that you're right. There's so much projection. There's just terror, right? People are going through life white knuckling their way, right? They're terrified. You see this on the road all the time. Like I will look over and I will see the driver next to me and they're almost shaking, right? In their driver's seat, like the, the grimace on their face, right? It takes an extraordinary amount of courage to wake up in the morning and leave the front door. And I think when it comes to when we're watching someone who is, is marching to the beat of their own drum, boy, that's threatening. Uh, someone, someone was telling me a story about they had, they had met Mother Teresa and they had said, you're such a saint. And she said, don't you dare put me in that box because it would mean that you couldn't live this way also. Wow. Right. Yeah. We, we, we quickly want to heroicize people or put them outside of our reach so that we don't have to do likewise. Yeah. What a great, profound perspective. Um, and that reminds me of a quote by um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, RBG, the OG. She had something to the effect of don't put me on a pedestal because essentially it's a cage and it's very limiting mm. too. So there's that perspective. That's right. Too. Yeah. And I love that. And it limits people from being human when you're idolizing them. And yeah, that's so interesting. And I love what you said, how it can be threatening um, people who are living themselves fully and out loud, very destabilizing for people and very jarring for the status quo. And like you said, it kind of confronts them with the potential and the possibilities and what could be. And that requires more bandwidth and more energy and, and more to, to live out loud, like the person who's wearing what they want and living as they want and it's very upsetting because again, like it upsets that, that desire and that need for surety and stability and order and organization. So interesting. And and I don't want to minimize the need for stability. I mean, for one thing, for one thing, almost the entire first half of life is building a scaffolding that we can then use to do the work on the structure underneath. And if we don't have a strong scaffolding, if we if we don't have a sufficient enough ego development, we'll never be able to take it apart. Right. <laughs> it's such a paradox. Right. So we we need strong stability. You know, this is I'm a parent of four children, and one of the the elements is you know I don't just let my children do whatever comes to them. Right. Well, why not? Why why do I provide? structure and categories? Why do I provide clear-cut boundaries? So that they can exceed them. They don't know that yet. (laughs) They don't know that that I tell them no so that they'll actually push back, but that's actually true, right? Because eventually they'll be able to, from that strong and consolidated place, to overflow those bounds, to go in greater directions. But their mind actually needs those containers for right now. Sure. One day it won't. Yeah. I, yeah, so the structure is crucial because, I mean, I'm a big believer in balance and I'm a big believer in you needing, you need both. I and mean, when you need the structure because otherwise it'd just be pure chaos. 
So you need some sort of organization and structure, but then also you need the other side of that too, to balance right. it out. Yes. And then I love that. And that's something that I've, I mean, I had fantastic parents. They knocked it out of the park. They really did. But that's something that I wish I would have realized early on and had that drive and that comfort in, in pushing back. I mean, in a, you know, in a certain way, um, but being able to, to question things and being able to, you had posted something about your son. He was lobbying for something. I can't remember what it was. He wanted something. And I love that because he gave a pretty solid argument on why he wanted what he wanted. He advocated for himself pretty strongly. And I love that. And I love that space that you left for him to do that and that encouragement. And I think that's great. I think that's how people in general, but especially youth should view the world. I mean, there's a, a respect for organization and structure, sure, but there's also the the belief in themselves and the open-mindedness to to challenge the status quo in certain things. And that's how innovation happens and that's how progress happens and that's how self-evolution happens and self-advocacy. And those are crucial because I've spent like my career not advocating for myself because I never felt quite comfortable speaking up for myself. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I think that what you just described, this not feeling comfortable speaking up for yourself, I think it is just such a, a learned skill, right? Sure. That, that I, I'm not sure if any of us just come into the world knowing exactly how to do that. For one thing, we, we get too many shutdowns too quickly. <laughs> We learn very, very quickly that I, I shouldn't say this or else dad will say that. I, I shouldn't, right? So the shoulds start to dominate our realities. We go inward very, very quick. You know, roughly from, from three to five years old, we're already developing the first layer of what will become our fixed personality structure. I, I can't think of too many choices I consciously made from three to five years old. But of course I was, I was developing this infrastructure that would then dominate so much of my life. Um, which is why when we begin to do deconstructive work with people, why when we begin to really go back to those places and begin to de-armor, destabilize really um, those places, it's, it's frightening, right? Because yeah. we've erected these secure boundaries to try and go through life um, in, in comfortable ways. And to pull off that armor is to get very, very naked, <laughs> to be naked yeah. and afraid in the middle of a clearing. Yeah. Like anything is possible. Yeah. Suddenly it's scary. Yeah. And yeah. yet it, it becomes necessary. And suddenly from that place, you begin to have access to all those things you cut away, like self-advocacy, right? And you begin to be able to learn some of those skills. They're not so scary anymore. They're just skills. It's like, oh, I thought I couldn't do that. Well, I always could. For instance, yeah, yeah. I was working with a, um, uh, a, a person who was experiencing profound um, emotional abuse in their marriage. And I, I sort of just blurted something out like so unskillfully, like not, not, not very thoughtfully. I just said, why don't you yell back? You know, I just, it tumbled out. I just wanted them to fight back. And she said, I could never do that. That's not who I am. And see, I, I absolutely believe she was telling the truth, that she was addicted to the idea that she was the kind of person who couldn't fight back. 
But the truth is she absolutely has the capacity. She has the capacity as a human being to have the emotion of anger. She has the capacity to have a vocal that's larger than a, than a one decibel, right? Like she has those capacities, but she's addicted to this notion that she's the kind of person who would never. But when we take apart those layers and get down to those places, we suddenly realize that we are potential. And in that moment, she can actually grasp the possibility of meeting life on its own terms, of rising to the challenge that the moment presents. And that's why we do this work. That's why we do shadow work. That's why we, we deconstruct the layers of self, because we want to be able to respond to the life that's happening right now. So if someone's yelling at me, I can find that I have a pantheon of choices of what to do, that I'm not limited, that I can actually respond appropriately in congruence with my own value. Yes. And yes, in full support of what you just said, yes. And that comes to one of your quotes, and you'd posted this a while ago, kind of in the same vein, speaks to this. Anything you do all the time isn't skillful, it's habitual. And it's where you're getting stuck. What are your patterns? Where are you losing the ability to respond to life as it is? Mm, and then this, I mean, it. this just encompasses all that we've been talking because it's all tied together. Mastering both skill sets of leaving and staying. So there's that balance aspect of it that plays into it. Today's post about not getting locked into a certain identity. So like for her, her identity of I would never fight back or I'd never speak back or speak up. And knowing, like you said, you absolutely have that capacity and we all have that capacity and we can break free from those chains of a certain locked identity and respond right. to life as we need to in the moment. And there's so much potential within every single one of us. That's right. The, the, the real trick in getting from point A to point Z here is that you actually have to take a real hard look at who you are how you are occurring, the limited self, right? You actually have to become aware of what your patterns are. That's why things like those tools that you were referencing from my post today about be more than those things are really useful, <laughs> right? They, they reveal where we're stuck. Personality typing systems are useful because they reveal where you're stuck. Star charts and astrology is useful because it reveals a certain kind of impact or influencing on your mind and where you've been stuck. Uh, you know, all of these different things, even including your political persuasion, your religious affiliation, they all reveal places where you're locked down and you need to know them. You need to go through them. You need to know what your defense mechanisms are and, and your compulsive behaviors. You need to take an honest, non-judgmental, radical look at who you are being in the world. Yes. And when you do non-judgmentally, yes. without placing a value of good or bad, right or wrong on it, you get to make choices. You get to make choices. You have the agency and you're not That's stuck right. there. And yeah, awareness is that first step. It is crucial. You have to be aware, like you said, of where you're stuck. And that's your starting point. Um, highlights where you can work. And I, I love that thought of just having that power. It's such an empowering feeling to know. And I, I mean, not to say that I, I definitely don't have life figured out, but I would always get frustrated with people who would say, well, that's just the way that I am. And that would always frustrate me because, well, it doesn't have to be, <laughs> you know, if, if a certain behavior is um, 
not serving you or others or it's toxic, quote unquote toxic. I mean, you have the power. It just seems so limiting to me. You have the power. We each have the power to be more than we are right now, to be more than our type, to, I mean, whatever. So yeah, I love all of that. I have some more questions. Don't know. Oh, okay, please. Yes. Let's, let's, let's go for it. Do you have it? Do you have, was there something you were going to say? No. Okay. It, it, this conversation it can be endless, which is part it, of its beauty. No. Actually, I do want to ask you um, before we go on to something else. Um, nature versus nurture too. What are your thoughts on nature versus nurture? I mean, when we're talking about like, we have the power to go beyond anything that we're, that we are right now. Like, what are your thoughts on that? I think nature loves nurture is the reality, right? And so, uh, for instance, you know, human infants go through three trimesters in the womb, but really almost all of our um, uh, development requires a fourth trimester. Mm. Well, the human mother can't actually sustain a fourth trimester because of the side of the human cranium. So she had to birth a child at an inadequate amount of time. So humans then developed this amazing form of nurturance that we call attachment parenting, right? Where it's skin to skin, it's responsive, it's feed on demand, it's, it's always being within less than 10 seconds of your primary caregiver when in distress. Um, this amazing call and response system that mimics the womb, but externally. Well, what is that? That's nurture, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's this amazing nurturance. So uh, also, I would say anything that's been offloaded into language, like culture, um, so many of those, those transitional elements are nurture, uh, and, and, and yet they're necessary for development of our natural tendencies. So many of the things that are possible for us at a natural standpoint, require flipping the switch. Like if they don't happen, if that switch doesn't get flipped, we'll unfortunately never develop that capacity. Let me give you a really good example. Can I give you an example of yes, this? Yes, please. Um, masculine, the masculine developmental art is one of externalized initiations. Mm. So the female journey historically really begins with internalized initiations, right? Estrus, uh, she has her cycle. At nine to 12 years old, she's confronted with an internal reality of death, of mortality, the death of a potential, this egg, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And she has this internalized death experience. Well, the male has no corollary internally. There is no internal confrontation of mortality. So yeah. cultures understood that what they had to do in order to create that experience for the male was to mimic a near-death experience, which is why male initiations in almost every indigenous uh, hunter-gatherer band society have existed. Roughly between the ages of 9 to 15 years old, a boy will undergo this massive confrontation with self where he will have the effects of death simulated for him in order to confront life as difficult, life as challenging. He has to pass through that ordeal in order to become a fully functional member of the tribe. So why? 
well, that's nurture, right? That's this uh, synthetic um, container that's been created to do what wasn't naturally there. So again, just a point to nature loves nurture, especially for humans. Ooh, powerful. Thank you. Thank you for outlining that. Um, so how do you approach parenting considering all that we just talked about and considering all of that um, to cultivate that awareness in your kids, that, that freedom, but still respect for structure, laying that foundation. Just, I mean, do you have any guidance on parenting that you would offer? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think parenting is one of those wonderful uh, experiences that reveals your profound inadequacy. Imagine, uh, terrifies me. <laughs> And, um, you know, I think that there's something really vulnerable about being a parent. John F. Kennedy said, the moment our children are born, they take us hostage. And I think that's really true. Suddenly we begin to have a new fear set. I'll never forget when my, my oldest son was born, he, he was five and a half weeks premature. And of course there's the terror of water breaking five and a half weeks early and, and you weren't ready. And, you run to the hospital and and then I I remember when he he crested out when he came out so beautiful so small and I held him for for just a moment and then he started to turn purple right he started to turn a color and a male nurse grabbed him like a football and said dad follow me and I ran behind him and they put all of these wires on him and these cords and this breathing apparatus. And, and as I looked at this child who was ostensibly moments from death, um, I've never felt so vulnerable, right? I never had felt so much love and yet had never felt so much like I had been taken hostage. That's beautiful. And that's, I mean, that's a different kind of love because there are so many different kinds of loves like platonic love and familial love and romantic love. And that's one of, um, I'll dare say the main themes of your work too is vulnerability is the gateway to that. I mean, like complete surrender. And that's where you're really going to feel the power of love when you just let go and let it in instead of holding yourself back. There's a poem from the 15th century I wish I had it available, I'd read it, and I can't even remember the name of it, but I remember the repetitive line, uh, it is human to love that which death can touch. Mm. And I think how sacred that is. It is sacred to love that which death can touch, which of course, Mary Oliver, that wonderful poet echoes, uh, when she says, oh, to love what is lovely and will not last. What a task to ask of anyone, and it is our, right? Isn't this beautiful that, that actually it is those moments, right? Like parenting moments, like mm-hmm. when, oh my God, like th- this, my heart is getting ripped out here. You're, you're, yeah. you're crucifying me yeah. by, by this, this rather fragile occurrence. It's love, it's romance, it's, it's um, the calling that is backbreaking, that you, you toil every day, that you, you work for very little recognition. It's, it's the lover who doesn't actually respond or, 
or return your love. It's all of those things, right? Because there's only two things that, that actually transform us and they're intertwined. Great love and great suffering. Ooh, yes. right? Those two things actively produce transformation. Yes, they do. And they're usually intertwined. Yes. And yes. And I love a point that you had made too, how they coexist. I mean, yeah. it's not like they're mutually exclusive or you're going to be fully in one state and not the other. I mean, they're side by side, man. You can experience both at the same time. Life shows you. That's right. Yeah. So, okay. So we're, okay, man, that 45 minutes just zoom by. <laughs> we'll get into, I have some questions for you too. Um, and I also really, really want to emphasize um, the work that you do with people. So you have your rope course, right? The rope. Mm, and yeah. then how you, um, I don't know if there's coach, coach people. So you do, do you do one-on-one? -on -one? Are they one-on-ones? And there's like a group? Yeah. So, so primarily my work would involve both groups and then individual uh, experiences. I, I, I have a very limited work with individuals. I take on a handful every quarter. Um, and I begin to pour into them really, really deeply. I work with people who are healers, helpers, leaders, thinkers, doers, people who wish to intentionally make an impact in their world at whatever stage they find themselves. Maybe they're starting out in that journey. I often have people who are years into their journey, people who have lived professional lives as psychologists or doctors who come to me and they say, I'm so burnt out, I, I can't even imagine doing what I'm doing anymore. And we'll begin to work together across the next 16 weeks of time, uh, getting deep into these places of recognition of their soul. You know, the soul is, is such a shy creature. She's like a deer in a, in a meadow that if you, if you stumble upon her too fast, right, she'll flee, she'll flutter yeah. away. Yeah. And so you actually have to approach it rather skillfully and, and slyly. And that's what we do across those four months. So that's my one-on-one -on -one work. And then I have group containers as well, like the rope, which is aimed at masculine leadership. And it's, it's, uh, I never use the word, the masculine archetype or masculinity or any of those principles, but that's really what we're doing. We're honing a very specific set of archetypal ways of being in the world. And I do that with men again, who are leaders, thinkers, feelers, and doers also have another, um, group that is coming out, I think this spring called the mirror, which is that same thing, but for women. Uh, mm -hmm. and, um, and so that's developing those, those same ways of being in the world to encounter possibility, to encounter, um, the incredible experience of being joyfully and vibrantly alive as a leader on this planet. I'll be honest. I have never, I mean, you see opportunities like that all the time on social media and online. And I have never, ever once ever been, um, felt compelled to take such an opportunity. So I'm thinking in the spring mm. <laughs> in one of your groups, because you, you just have rave reviews and people, I mean, you see the work that you do and the value that you provide just in your post, those alone, but then also you'll post reviews of people expressing the transformation their lives have taken from working with you and it's <laughs> that is enough to sell you and if you weren't a believer before I mean you just do incredible life-changing work and you just prove it time and time again 
I do want to say here, I don't post the bad reviews. You know, it's not like <laughs> I, I post those. Uh, but but in, in, in truth, I'm actually, I'm actually always shocked too. You know, uh, I, I have a sense that something is happening for people. I have a sense that, that things are shifting, but then they'll reach out to me afterwards and they'll, they'll say, uh, uh, nothing like this has ever happened. Um, they'll say that was actually magic. I don't, I don't, I don't understand what, what happened, but my life is irreparably different. And I have to say, I don't quite understand it either. Um, there is something really, really special uh, that occurs. I know part of it is a technology of change. Part of it is I've been a I've been a seeker so much of my life. I've been a student of change technologies. I was in a, a intentional community of work and prayer uh, for my twenties and had the opportunity of studying under some of the most remarkable spiritual teachers around the world in a variety of traditions. That was eye-opening and illuminating. I was able to go to graduate school and study Western psychology and and then eventually mastered uh, a form of, of uh, therapeutic intervention based upon Zen principles, and really walked that path as well. And, um, so I know that there is sort of this thing that I can explain, right? Like I, I can look at that body of, of input and go, okay, I've been shaped across the years by that. But I have to be honest, there is something that happens when two willing hearts meet in a room, Ooh. right? And I can open my heart and they can open theirs. And there's something that occurs that's bigger than either of us. Yes. Yes. Wow. Um, yeah. You just, the value you provide and the lives you change. Okay. So, so many questions I want to ask too about your, just your outlook and how you respond to life. And your burnout, I mean, because you're providing so much value to people and, and giving so much. How do you sidestep burnout or do you welcome it? Because I know burnout, like you had said like before, it can be like a gateway to the next dimension. And this is actually mm. positive, you know, and that's such a premise for like a reason to to join your groups and to work with you. Um, so that's not your it's not a death sentence. I mean, that's just gateway to the next level man that's a good thing that can be positively framed but with you because it takes a lot of bandwidth to live that deeply how do you handle it yourself to stay mm. lift it up oh yeah such a good question mm-hmm. well part of it is actually just intrinsic part of it is i have broad shoulders <laughs> just in reality the way my temperament is, is incredibly resilient, actually. And I notice that while other people will get knocked out along the way, it doesn't seem like it happens to me as frequently. So that, I mean, that's just one thing. But I think on a skillful level, uh, the truth is I'm learning just like everybody else is, how to skillfully navigate those places of deep woundedness. You know, five years ago, I had reached a point uh, when I was a practicing therapist. I was a graduate school professor. I was specializing in chronically suicidal and self-harming clients and had reached to a certain tier. I thought I was doing pretty good. And the truth is, I wasn't. 
the truth is I had buried so many things in my basement of shadows. I had cut away a lifetime of things I was suppressing and repressing. I was, I was coping my way through life. Right. And, and I think that had I been looking outside, I would have gone, well, of course the floor is going to fall out from under you. Like, of course you're going to feel the, the fall. Um, but I, I wasn't really aware in that moment. So since then, one of the interesting things that I've walked and navigated in life is, is simply uh, putting, putting into play people who are very, very close to me, people who are mirrors to me, who I absolutely trust, like my front line. I don't have many of them. Like I've got like five people who, when they say Rainier, this is what's happening for you. I go, Oh God, that's what's happening for me. Right. They know me as well, if not better than myself. Yes. And when they say, leave it like a dog, I leave the bone. Right. Just because like they said, so they know me, I give them that permission in my life. So for me, tribe, that externalized feedback loop is so profoundly important. And whether that's a lover or that's just close friends who are, who are closer than family, those are roles that have become invaluable for me. I tell you the other thing is pleasure. Pleasure has become a, a powerful um, activator in my life. Now, I don't necessarily mean that just like uh, I hear on Instagram when people talk about that. But I think like delight, just this you know, laying back into the pillow and saying, this pillow is very good. Yes. Right. This bed is very, uh, it's, it's perfectly holding me right now. This moment is soft. Um, and so beginning to hold those places where you are held is actually a wonderful way of navigating that. Yes. That mindfulness and that gratitude and I think you had said before how gratitude is an active practice and it's that's it. yeah. cultivated and continued and efforts continually poured into that as it should be. And I love how you had pointed out, um, cause I'm the same. I mean, you have your tribe of people, very few, like you vetted them and you know that they know you and as you're aligned and yes, you're on the same page, same wavelength, but there's just something powerful about that outside perspective again, I mean, it has to be a certain kind of person who knows you, but is willing to speak the truth to you. You have your ultimate welfare in mind. So they're not just going to placate you and soothe you with lies for their own comfort or your comfort. Like they're not, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you how it is because they care about you. But there's something so powerful about someone who can offer that outside perspective. And you just know, like they're dialed into you, you're dialed into them and then fully trust that. Yeah. And and I just want to say, because you highlighted this so well, they really have to have a hand in both pockets, right? On one hand, they have to know your greatness, right? I have no time for people who are just the raw truth tellers. They're assholes. Yes. 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 And I have have no time for that person. No, no. A a, a, a person who, who is in your tribe, who is on your front line, who is, who is that, that close um, perspective has to be someone who recognizes your greatness. Yes. They have to be someone who says you're, you're incredible. And if you don't see it, you need to take off those glasses. 
Yes. They also have to have the other side where they're not scared to say the truth to you. But they really have to have both. Have to have both. I won't trust them if they, no. if they have one and not the other. No, not at all. They have to straddle that line where they like see your heart, they see your intentions, they see your potential, they see your greatness, like you said, but then they're willing to speak truth. Yes, sure. that's so imperative. Yeah, and that's the people that I trust fully with that. Yes, they see me. They see my intentions, my heart, all of that, but then they're also willing to speak truth. And I think sometimes it's glorified, um, like the rawness or like speaking out and calling out and canceling and all of that. I mean, there's also, I mean, another, this is kind of the same vein, kind of not, but there's also that acknowledgement of a person's greatness that needs to be acknowledged instead of just your asshole, like you had said. You know, I mean, there needs to be that balance. Um, and we're, I know that we're running out of time. So I just have a couple more questions. Um, so one thing, this is just a burning question that I have for you, because I mean, and I love how you just nonchalantly let slip like, oh, I was a therapist. No, I was this. No, like you just have such life experiences that come through and you're one of the most fascinating people I've ever met. But where do you get your inspiration? Because each and every day you have these posts that are just gutting. That's not quite the word, but they're just so deep and profound and paradigm shifting. And it just seems so effortless. And there's just this eternal spring of profound wisdom from which you draw every day. What is it really like? Like, do you really, does it just come so easily and seamlessly? I really want to answer that. Not glibly, you know? Thank you. <sighs> I think the truth is that sometimes it is profoundly effortless. There is something I can't explain, but I know I've stepped into where I feel more than myself so often. I hear words for it and I'm never comfortable with them. I think that it kind of goes with that magic that happens when people sit in a room together. Here's the thing. If you've allowed the world to break open your heart, you've invited something larger than you to pour through you. And that's how I often feel. I feel that I've, I've hit some of the darkest places I think a human can imagine. And, and I mean that. And largely related to my own failures. My God, I, you know, if I've lived many lives, it's because I've pulled many rocks down on my own head and died and then reborn. Like I, I, I have failed so much at this thing called being human. I've been so profoundly asleep. I've been so profoundly neglectful of my own heart that I feel graced and even privileged to get to be talking to you. Because at some point along the way, I was tired of drowning, right? So I dived in the water. <laughs> I, 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 I think that great love and great suffering for me have been transformation. So when I wake up in the morning and I sit there and I think, what needs to be said? What needs to be said today? The truth is, it can be incredibly effortless where I look at that thing and I say, I'm not sure I wrote those words. I'm not sure that was me entirely. And then there's some days where it's effort. <laughs> there's some days where I look at my previous posts for inspiration and I say, what did I say three years ago? That, that might be interesting. <laughs> uh, I'm no perfect soul, you know, but the reality is that I do feel more and more that my life is not my own. 
I think that's, that's really the high point of calling for all of us, that we would say something has laid hold of me. How dare I not lay hold of it? Ooh, yeah. that, that, that we actually join our willingness to true will and we begin to stretch towards more, not on behalf of ourselves, but on behalf of the world at large. And that's a place that I find myself entering into and, and could invite us all to actually step into also. What a beautiful perspective. What a great note to end on too. Thank you. And just, I do want to say you're so inspirational too, because I've, I've really felt that calling within myself because I have lived such a charmed, safe, sheltered life in so many ways. Mm. And that is so appealing. Just there's such beauty. And the older I get, the more I see it, the beauty and the ups and the downs and the sting of life. There's such beauty in that and embracing it all and understanding all of those experiences are enriching your life and your perspective. And then you're able to share more and it's just all again, so beautiful. Okay. Last question for you. What would be your message to the world? Oh man, you ask good questions. Thank you. Uh, That means a lot coming from you. (laughs) These have been really good questions. There's a, there's a poem by, um, by the poet Rilke that comes to mind. And I think, I think I'd like to quote it if it's okay, because I think he uses uh, economy of words that I think I would have to sit and ponder when he does it so effortlessly. He says, God speaks to us each as he makes us, then walks us silently out of the night. These are the words we dimly hear. You sent out beyond your recall. Go to the limits of your longing. Embody me. Flare up like flame. Make big shadows I can move in. Let everything happen to you. Beauty and terror, just keep going. No feeling is final. Don't let yourself lose me. Nearby is the country they call life. You will know it by its seriousness. Give me your hand. And I think particularly those words go to the limits of your longing. Embody. Flare up like a flame. I think that's what I would say for myself and for others. Wow. Just jaw dropped. I mean, so many beautiful messages in that. Resilience, stamina, acceptance, respect, trust, all of that. Wow. Thank you. Gosh, I bow down. Okay. So will you tell people where they can find you? And I'll put this in the show notes too. Yeah. RainierWild.com. And then on Instagram, Rainier Wild. Those are the two places I haunt. You can find me on Facebook, but it won't do you much good. I'm rarely on there. And it's just a a mere shadow of, of where I am on Instagram. So you know, I love it when people talk to me where they drop messages. I, I love getting comments. I'm not always the greatest about responding, but I do try and I do uh, try and engage. I get a lot of them and usually try and work through them. I love it when people make the risk of showing themselves and telling their stories. Ooh. It's so powerful. And it's, it's something that I, I feel profoundly honored to interact with. So yes. if you want to do that, please engage there. Sign up for my mailing list and... Uh, I always offer, whether it's courses or one-on-ones, you can usually view that on my stories. That's where I usually post things so that you can see what's going on and be a part of it. 
Oh my gosh. Thank you again for your time and your wisdom and your insight, all of it. You are the best. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, Whitney.